This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. There's so many things about John that are quite amazing. I don't understand how he does them all. In addition to all the things, I'm not even going to go over the CV because you've seen movies, you've seen the TV things, you've seen all the things that he's done, but I wonder how many of you know that he also writes children's books. Some of you do. He writes wonderful children's books, which I've gotten for my grandchildren, and he writes things on what to do with your kids on a rainy afternoon. You can get that. He paints things. There's just an extraordinary range of things that he does, and there are so many that we couldn't possibly cover all of them tonight, but I'd like to focus on just a few of them before they do the question and answer, and I'd like to focus on the ones that really have to do with the motive of what my hope was in trying to think about bringing him here, and that has to do with how he plays historical characters. He just got an Emmy, you just got this Emmy for playing Churchill. And I... In this uh, BBC British uh, series on the current Queen Elizabeth called The Crown, how do you prepare to play Winston Churchill, world-famous character? I, I think I prepared more for Churchill than any other role I've ever played uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, I'm completely different from Winston Churchill. I thought they were crazy to hire me for it, and I was heading over to London to work with some of the best theater and film actors in England, all of them playing English characters, and I was the only American to come over and play the most famous figure of, the, of England's 20th century. Uh, so I was, I was scared to death and did a huge amount of uh, research, reading, watching loads of video and audio, uh, but the real, the real nitty-gritty kicked in as soon as I arrived in England. Uh, I think I'd been hired to do it in the month of January. We didn't start shooting till July, so I had loads of time to do all this kind of academic research. But then in the month of June, I went over to England for 10 days of bona fide rehearsal with all the actors I'd be working with and with the four directors who'd be directing the, the 10 episodes. We actually didn't rehearse in any conventional, we didn't play scenes at all. Uh, we didn't read lines to each other, we just sat with an extraordinary historical consultant. It was really like a seminar on the period and these characters. But every day I was scheduled to go off and work with a costume designer, designing my fat suit and adjusting my high waist, anything to make me look short. Uh, Working. You're, you're six oh, well. foot four and he was five foot six. So. Yep. Right. And we were both 225 pounds, so <laughs> he was about this shape. Um, and I also worked with the makeup artist, this remarkable woman named Ivana Primarek, who fashioned a makeup for me which was so minimal that it only took about 20 minutes. There was nothing glued onto my face at all. She worked literally from the inside out getting me these fat jowls that stuck inside, clicked to my back teeth. I called them my plumpers, which not, not only changed my face, but my voice. So I sounded like Churchill, stuffed cotton up my nose to make, give me a bulbous nose and a very nasal voice, which he had. 
And I worked with a dialect coach uh, named William Conacher, uh, not just on the dialect, but also the sound, this extraordinary sound of his voice. And inevitably on the character. I just, it emerged from like all these technical uh, choices bespoke a kind of character. He gradually turned into a human being very different from myself, rather different from Churchill, but much more like Churchill than me. Uh, in all of this, I was just trying to inhabit the essence of Churchill. But the bottom line, Peter, the most important thing about playing historical figures is the writing. Raise your hands if you've seen The Crown. Well, you know what I'm talking about. It's just a beautiful piece of writing by a playwright, Peter Morgan. And it, it, there are all these characteristics of Churchill, which you just want to inject into this piece because they're so delicious. You know that he had a very maudlin streak. He was terribly sentimental. He would cry at insurance ads. Uh, <laughs> You know, he was also uh, a depressive, a terrible depressive, prone to what everyone called his black dog. On the other hand, he had a dazzling wit, an extraordinary intelligence. He could quote you pages and pages of Shakespeare and 19th century poetry. And he was a drunk. He drank and drank and drank. Uh, the most piquant quote on the subject of Churchill's drinking that I found was when a friend of his was asked, is he an alcoholic? His answer was no. Winston was not an alcoholic. No alcoholic could drink that much. <laughs> it, uh, and that had, to, uh, that had to inform him. He'd also had appalling accidents and wartime injuries. He, his body must have hurt all the time. He aged much faster than you and I. Uh, at age, I'm 70, almost 72 years old. At that age, he looked like an 80-year-old. He was just, you want to, you want to, all, you want to convey all those things. You want to tell his whole story. I was just playing him as an old man. Peter Morgan found ways of telling these things about Churchill, even though he was a supporting character. He would pick episodes from his life that would show, that should sort of show off these things, fold them right into the much more important story of his relationship to Elizabeth and his wife Clemmie and Antony Eden. But my best example of the way Peter would put these on display was Churchill also had a white-hot temper, a kind of alcoholics raging temper that would explode. Well, you people who have seen it, you remember the episode where Churchill's portrait is painted uh, as a tribute to him by the Houses of Parliament. And he, he gradually gains the trust of the portrait artist, Graham Sutherland. They become friends, and he, he's very excited and anticipating the portrait. When he finally sees it, he hates it! And he rages, and finally you see Churchill's temper. But it's not a political, he's not raging at Neville Chamberlain or Antony Eden. He's raging at a painter who ha whom he feels has insulted him, his vanity. And it's an old man 
raging at, at his own old age and his mortality. It's absolutely heartbreaking because it's such impotent anger. That's Peter Morgan. It's so, so much more a dramatic choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're very, very lucky, you have the support of somebody who's writing mm-hmm. the character as much more than a historical f- figure, a flesh and blood human being just bursting with emotion. How different is it to play somebody real from history as opposed to playing a character from a play or from fiction? Is it the writing? Are you looking for the character in the writing? I think the more similar it is, the better it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because you're going after his emotional life rather than Mm -hmm. his, what we know about him historically or what we want to tell about him historically. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, if you play Macbeth, you're trying to analyze all the things that drive him, how he experiences his own sort of uh, clammy terror at what he's done. Mm-hmm. after he's slain King Duncan, mm-hmm. uh, you, you just break down the, the emotional building blocks and find mm-hmm. the moments when a scene turns. Well, if you have beautiful writing, like Peter Morgan's historical writing, you approach Churchill in exactly the same way. How are you constrained, affected, in, enhanced, or limited by... The fact of a real person. Well, the more you accumulate the facts, the the more you have the superstructure. In a sense, it was very much what Peter Morgan was doing. He Mm -hmm. was writing hypothetical history. We Mm -hmm. talked, you and I, about the most vivid scenes, the sort of of spine of the story is the conversations between Churchill and Elizabeth in these audiences between the Queen and her Prime Minister. Nobody knows what was said in those meetings. The only person alive who knows is Queen Elizabeth, and she ain't talking. Mm -hmm. Uh, This gave Peter Morgan this extraordinary freedom to invent these scenes of dialogue. And he just accumulated as much history as he possibly could, and then he created hypothetical scenes, which have an amazing ring of of truth to them. Uh, and the same goes for an actor. I gather all this information about Churchill. The most vivid stuff I got was the William Manchester trilogy, that long, long biography, The Last Lion, mm. which told the whole story of his childhood, his teenage years, his frustrating years at Sandhurst, and his desperate effort to climb into the circle of power by plunging himself into wars all over the world. He was in about five or six near-death experiences in battle in Cuba, Sudan, South Africa, India, Afghanistan, all before he was 30 years old. And in his young years, he was terribly neglected and felt like such a failure. His own father would tell him that. He was a, a terrible student lonely. He was most devoted to his nanny in his life. And when he was off at boarding school, his parents uh, let her go because she wasn't needed anymore without even telling him. Absolutely broke his heart. You accumulate that kind of knowledge and it informs him as, a, as an old man. You just, to me, his babyhood came back mm-hmm. as I played him as a, as a failing old man. Mm-hmm. 
People have their strong opinions about him. Mm-hmm. Are you constrained by that? Is it a no? Not really. I, I sort of ignored his politics. I knew he was conservative, an old imperialist, mm-hmm. a, the, the only Victorian left, and stuck in that era. And that the other Tories, not to mention the Labour Party, wanted to pull him down. Mm-hmm. He was too old to be prime minister mm-hmm. anyway. Mm-hmm. I knew all that, but I didn't dwell on the politics nearly as much as. I dwelt on his desperate effort to hang on to his relevancy, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. his vitality, and his, uh, and his position as prime minister. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I just looked at him as a person and tried to deeply sympathize with him. Mm-hmm. What is the obligation to be correct or true? What does that mean to it's you? It's very hard. Uh, I, I take it seriously. I want it to be correct. But truth is elusive, as you historians know better than anybody. Uh, I do have a sense that entertainment is a great way of teaching people, uh, illuminating people. My wife teaches a course in in drama and business, how business and business history is told through various entertainments, plays and movies. Uh, but you have to be very, very skeptical because that's fiction and it's entertainment. It's number one priority is to delight people, entertain them. Uh, if you educate them, you may be educating them wrong. Uh, with any luck, you're educating them right, and I believe the crown more or less does that. Mm. But the, the, what's great about the crown is how captivating it is. You don't really think nearly as much about the politics and the history as you do the sibling relationship between Elizabeth and uh, Margaret mm. or the young married relationship between Philip and Elizabeth when she has just become queen and he's suddenly diminished into nothing. Uh, her relationship with her father near death and then dying near death without her knowing it and dying suddenly. I mean, these are human interactions that all of us connect with. Mm-hmm. It's just, it just makes us kind of feel good that there's a historical backdrop to all of this, mm-hmm. which they can more or less trust because they know that it's been so deeply researched. Mm-hmm. Tell us, how do you draw up, what do you draw upon to be able to play such an extraordinary range of different people? Well, uh, I have a lot of uh, kind of scattered uh, experience in all sif- sorts of different forms. Mm-hmm. In my own mind, I always go back to the fact that my father produced Shakespeare festivals when I was growing up out in Ohio. One of them in Cleveland, the Great Lakes Shakespeare Festival, is still exists. He started it in wow. 1962. And mm-hmm. when I was a kid, my summers were hanging around the outdoor Shakespeare festivals, and even being in the plays, these were seven plays a summer. They would rehearse in the day, perform them in the evening, open one a week until like sometime in mid-August, once they were all open, they would run them in repertory, a different Shakespeare play every night of the week for a month and a half. Mm -hmm. Now, when you think about Shakespeare and his canon, he wrote Hamlet, but he also wrote Comedy of Errors. He wrote Macbeth and Merry Wives of Windsor. He wrote, he wrote the famous line, comical, historical, tragical, uh, pastoral. He, and all these actors 
they knew all these different roles in the back of their head and they would trot them out on different nights. They, they worked in so many different forms and that's what I did as a kid, just for the fun of it. I mean, playing little parts, mustard seed and coins and nim and froth and pinch and all these little journeyman roles, but putting on a pound and a half of makeup and crepe hair every night and uh, putty noses, being as different as possible night by night. And, you know, looking back on that, I realized that's kind of defines my entire career. So you learned how to do this uh being with your father from age two, being yeah, put on stage, yeah. and, and being with yeah. a whole bunch of actors, his, right. his acting companies. Right. I just idolized them all mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so admired what they did, even though I didn't really want to be an actor. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be a painter, mm. uh, but made a terrible mistake at some point early. <laughs> I, I heard too much laughter and applause, and that did it. You know, that's, uh, I remember reading something fascinating about that Jane Austen when somebody asked her where do you get this whole range of characters she pointed herself Mm -hmm. they're all inside me I thought that was quite an extraordinary uh, comment because there's such a you know she's just this little lady and did she really find them in herself so to what extent do actors do this do they turn inward to find some sort of strength or is it ex- learning a bunch of skills that it's not yourself, it's learning a bunch of external skills? And I think it's, it is a blend. You, you, yeah, you're, look, you're stuck with your body and your voice. Mm-hmm. Those are the constants and mm-hmm. a lot of your mannerisms that are just very innate to you. Mm-hmm. And then you have a lot of technique to sort of overlay that with, with a bunch of artifice, a lot of choices that you make, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, funny walks and curious, uh, I mean, the stuff that I stuck into my mouth to play Churchill that changed my whole sense of myself. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of blending technique and your own emotional impulses uh, and, and finding a character somewhere in between. Am I making sense? Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I love it. It's yeah. a mysterious yeah. process. Yeah. Uh, but it's a really fun process, mm-hmm. and you have to sort of plunge yourself into it. I do it with great gusto. When I work with, particularly with film directors who are constantly telling me, take it down, take it down. You know, I, <laughs> that's all right, I fully expect that. I'm a theater actor. I'm used to performing for all you people way in the back, you know. Well, so, <laughs> uh, but the thing is, I go. I, I tell them right up front, if I'm working with a new director, I say, I'm going to give you big. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to way overdo it on the first time round. I rely on you to modulate what I do. But you've got to give him something. Mm-hmm. You've got to give him something to work with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to me, that's, yeah, that's the fun of it. Mm-hmm. The extravagance, just sort of shocking everybody. I mean, the, the entire film crew usually goes, whoa, whoa. <laughs> What is this? And then you take it down and sort of shape it. But it's, uh, I mean, I feel that what's special about me as an actor is my long history in theater. Mm -hmm. And I, very often what's unusual about what I do in film and TV is what I bring from theater. Mm -hmm. Because I, you know, it is a construct. I see it as a very creative process. Well, tell us more about that, the difference between doing theater and film. 
Well, uh, there's different kinds of things. Uh, Third Rock from the Sun was virtually doing theater uh, because you do it with an audience, you work very closely with writers, you rehearse with great intensity, you only have about four days to do it, and then bam, you perform the whole thing in one evening between about 7 and 11 p.m., the whole thing in front of an audience who are, if you do it well, are absolutely delighted, and they record their laughter just to show you how funny you are. <laughs> That's one kind of acting for screen. Film acting tends to be very different from that. That's when I'm always told to keep it down, and I've got, I'm used to that. Uh, in fact, I've worked with one director recently, a wonderful director named Ira Sachs. He did a little film called Love is Strange, a little indie film that I did with Fred Molina a couple of years ago, playing a, an old gay couple who'd been together 40 years and finally get married. His main direction to both Fred and me, both of whom are quite extravagant theater actors, was no acting. He said, okay, do it again, but no acting. And he was, he was driving us crazy at first. Both of us were like, what do you mean no acting? This is what we do, you know. <laughs> but in no time at all, he won us over. We saw what he, and if you see this film, and I urge you to see it, it's really one of the nicest films I've done recently. It is so quiet and so real and so unacted. Uh, it's a different kind of acting altogether. And just like those Shakespeare actors, you just got to, act in very, very different veins from mm. one role to another. So what do you have to do to play the really terrifying characters? Like, when I watch Dex Dexter, I mean, I even watch, huh. I see the... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, I actually prepared for this. I said, you know, I'm going to look at this, him play that terrifying character in Dexter. What in the world do you go to to figure out how to play that very terrifying guy? Well, it's... You just get scary instead of funny. Uh, <laughs> the, oh, how do you do that? <laughs> I'll try it on my class. Well, the, the, that, this was the Trinity killer. Uh, he was a serial killer who was getting away with it for, for many years by being an extremely inconspicuous sort of good guy, a sort of church deacon, uh, uh, family man with children, uh, Habitat for Humanity kind of good Samaritan, very bland. As a matter of fact, there was a very, I got a very complimentary review in TV Guide. You wouldn't think it was complimentary because it referred to me as a, a bland blob of a man. <laughs> well, you start with that sort of with that sort of affect and then when you suddenly the blood drains out of your your character and you suddenly become in the grips of this compulsion it's all the more terrifying by how bland and sort of innocuous and uh, and sort of good sort of conventionally good the character is uh, it, it just makes your blood crawl you know uh, I don't know. You just do what's called for. <laughs> so, I mean, if there's a whiff of Macbeth added to this nice, bland guy who 
Yeah, well, Macbeth he's, and the church deacon. Well, the other fascinating thing about the Trinity killer is yeah. he was in the grips of this terrible compulsion, which was the result of a childhood trauma. Mm. He was, he's called the Trinity killer because he kills in threes. It's a completely diabolical, horrific plot. Uh, but what I found, what I managed to grab onto was the fact that this innocuous, bland man had this compulsion, did these horrific things, but did not want to do, did not want to have this compulsion. It was agony for him. In fact, he even wanted to be discovered. He wanted someone to stop this. Uh, I found that a, a fascinating dimension and something which I think probably had some real psychological validity. I mean, all, mm. all ser serial killers are serial killers in their own way. But I mean, uh, I found that that was a wonderful tool into this character. And in fact, it was, it's kind of what we were talking about at dinner. I'm fascinated by sympathy for the devil, for taking a person who in every way is a complete horror and somehow finding whatever it is in him or her. I've even played evil women who, uh, whatever it is that makes the character sympathetic, uh, finding the, the thing in that character, uh, a character who, hate, who hates himself. He hates himself. He's so desperately unhappy that he's compelled to do absolutely horrible and obscene things. We were talking about a certain figure in the very recent news. Uh, <laughs> and it, it's, to me, these are, these are fascinating characters. You just, for an actor, for a character actor, you look at behavior like that and you think, wow, nobody can ever tell me I'm over the top again. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> Lithgow, Lithgow for president, we could do a whole lot of <laughs> I heard you say that you just love doing Third Rock. Mm -hmm. what, why do you enjoy that? Nothing was more fun than Third Rock. It was extravagantly fun. It's, I, until that time, I was, it's like the only rule I had left for myself was never do episodic television. But I'd made great friends with Bonnie and Terry Turner, the married couple who created the series, during the 80s when they were on the writing staff for Saturday Night Live when I was the guest host a couple of times and they came my agent called me and said your friends Bonnie and Terry want to have breakfast with you and I said oh, wonderful I would love to see Bonnie and Terry so I showed up at the Four Seasons and there was Bonnie and Terry and Tom Werner and Marcy Carsey Karen Mondebach, the entire staff of Carsey Werner Television. And I realized I'd been completely ambushed. <laughs> I'd been tricked into a pitch for a sitcom, because that's what they did. These are the people who created The Cosby Show and Roseanne and Sybil and uh, all, all these hit uh, comedies. And I thought, oh my God, how am I? And, and sure enough, they had something they wanted to tell me about, and it, it fell to Terry to tell me the premise. And he said, well, it's about these four aliens. <laughs> and I heard this and thought, how am I going to get out of here? 
as graciously and as quickly as I can. What is the nicest way I can say unequivocally no? And five minutes later, he, had, he got me. He had totally persuaded me. It suddenly seemed like the most fantastic premise. I mean, my whole fear of doing episodic television that was, the, was that it would, you'd be stuck with one character forever, like Carol O'Connor was always Archie Bunker. He was magnificent, but he was always Archie Bunker. And as I've said, what I love to do is a different thing as possible from the last thing I just did. Well, playing Dick Solomon, it was, it was like a character actor's dream. Here was an alien inhabiting a human body and trying to figure out how to get things right, how to be a good human being, and trying out everything, which is basically what an actor does and when he plays different parts. And they pitched it to me like in that breakfast they told me about how, you know, at the drop of a hat at a party they could sit down to the piano and these four aliens could sing perfect close harmony Cole Porter. Or, or any, you know, you come out of a, a river dance concert and dance a perfect Irish jig, you know. And we did all these things. And, and it was, you know, once you say yes to these things and you discover how gloriously funny they are and how much people loved it, the, the, the show has just exploded when it hit the airwaves. I just thought, what in the world was I holding out for? So you met this afternoon with some of the students from our theater and dance program, and I'd love you to share and tell us what did you tell them about how to be an actor? Oh, well, I was very honest with them. I told them, are, you, are any of you here tonight? Raise your hands if, you're, if you came. These were just delightful delightful kids. I told them, you're, if you're in the MFA program at UCSD, you already have a great reason to be confident and you know, you're, you're well on your way. You, you will probably do well in the business. But younger people who tell me they want to be actors, I always say don't. Don't do it. It's a terrible profession. It's, it's rife with failure and rejection and disappointment. You have to suffer the agony of being rejected by people you have contempt for. <laughs> Don't be an actor. You'll suffer so much you won't make a living. You, you'll find yourself 40 years old and you haven't worked in five years and you'll look around for another profession and you realize you don't have one. Don't be an actor. But. I always add, if you're going to be an actor, you're going to ignore everything I say anyway. And, and if they have that kind of fire in their belly, then they should attempt to be an actor. But it's, it is a hard profession. It's, I, you you can, can't think of many careers more enviable than mine. And yet I still have terrible doubts and fears that I've made a wrong choice, envy that somebody else has gotten a role that I wanted, uh, looking back 20 years ago to why did I turn that down, you know. All these, these stupid, petty little anxieties. Uh, ask my wife about that. <laughs> She's the only one who has to live with all that. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, I, you, you look at them so fresh and clearly so talented. Uh, you think they're going to have a wonderful life. They're, they're going to enjoy this. You offered to do something uh, 
political. Mm. It was something you did in New York, so maybe you would share yeah. that with us. Um, yes, I, I, uh, I, I told Peter, I, when people hear an actor talk, what they really want to see him do is act. Yes. So I should do something. Why not? Uh, you offered it. I this, didn't ask. You offered yeah, it. Yeah, I did offer. Uh, uh, this is this needs a little context. Every year, the the public theater in New York does a big gala in Central Park with a theme. This year, the theme was uh, the public theater and its history with musicals, and it was a program made up of. Hare and Chorus Line and Hamilton and Two Gentlemen of Verona and Fun Home, all these big hit shows they'd created. Well, in the 70s, they had a big hit revival of Pirates of Penzance with Kevin Kline. And yes, Dan Sullivan put together the evening. He called me and asked me if I would come in and do the Major General's song from Pirates of Penzance. I had weaseled out of this gala three or four times, and I was so guilty about it, I said, yes, I'll do your uh, Major General song, even though I'd never played the Major General. My brain is not what it used to be. I had to memorize this incredibly dense patter song, uh, but I said yes. Then he called and said, how would you feel about doing it as Michael T. Flynn? <gasps> And he offered up a little couplet that somebody had written in place of the Gilbert and Sullivan lyrics. It wasn't all that good, but I said, sure, Dan, I'll do, I'll do it as Michael T. Flynn. We, we thought maybe we'd change it to, I am the very model of an ex-lieutenant general. I have information, etc. Uh, so we figured that, uh, but I said I would do it, but let me write the third verse. Let me substitute the third verse. I'll do the first two verses just like Gilbert and Sullivan. The only change I will make is ex-lieutenant general. And I'll come out dressed in a navy suit, red tie, black wig, long hooked nose, perfect. And they won't know what I'm doing except that I'm singing the major general song. And so, and then I'll launch into my own version. So I, I did it, and I was so scared. I thought this was... This had the potential for being such a bomb, but it was great. I, I will attempt to perform it the way I performed it, at least in part. And forgive me if I blow certain lyrics, because it really was hard. I came out. They introduced me as John Lithgow by the, the announcement. But I came out in this odd, unrecognizable persona. And I started in, I am the very model of an ex-lieutenant general. I have information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. I know the kings of England, and I quote the fights historical, from marathon to Waterloo in order categorical. I'm very well acquainted, too, with matters mathematical. I understand equations for the simple and quadratical. About binomial theorem, I'm teeming with a lot of news. A lot of news, a lot of news, a lot of news. With many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse and the chorus behind me. With many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse. With many cheerful facts about the square of the hypotenuse. Etc. The first two verses were pure Gilbert and Sullivan. Until the end of the second verse, I said, Then I can quote a, hug of, uh, then I can quote a fugue of which I've heard the music's dinoform. Dinoform, dinoform, dinoform. There's never been a general the likes of Michael Flynn before. There's never been a general the likes of Michael Flynn before. 
And, and you felt in the audience this general feeling of, oh, that's what he is doing. <laughs> and then I launched into my third verse. The orchestra slowed to a, as traditionally, a right. very slow pace. And I sang, when President Obama made me head of all things clandestine, he realized he'd brought to life a governmental Frankenstein. But then I made a killing in a case of public pillory by shouting, lock her up in my harangue opposing Hillary. <laughs> so I was chosen national security advisory until I let the crafty Russian secret service hire me. <laughs> now I've become the target of a special counsel crime report, a fate I share with Sessions, Donald Jr. and with Manafort. <laughs> I plead the Sixth Amendment when the pundits and the press attack my meeting Jared Kushner in a room with Sergei Kislyak. In short, in man is vegetable, animal and mineral, I am the very model of an ex-lieutenant general. And it absolutely stopped the show. <laughs> so... But that, <laughs> well, it absolutely stops the show here as well. Uh, so, uh, so why do you like Gilbert and Sullivan? You've done this for 50 years. Well, it's just so densely witty, you know. Uh, I, I, I have heard, I, I, I've heard it said, the great tradition is that it's much more fun to perform Gilbert and Sullivan than to actually watch it. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that's it was said by someone who had seen too much bad Gilbert and Sullivan. It's just endlessly clever, and uh, it's very English. I mean, there's still an incredible tradition of witty lyrics yeah. in yeah. England. Yeah. Uh, I did when I did the Magistrate, uh, this uh, Victorian farce at the National Theatre in London. They had little they. they wrote little sort of Victorian songs to precede every act that were just, I may one I can't remember his name, but the great lyricist, I think he was a co-lyricist of uh, Evita. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he, it was just, it was just sensational and, and they would come, you know, if one song didn't work it would be scrapped and there'd be another one the next morning. They're, they're, it's just this kind of literary excitement mm -hmm. energy mm -hmm. to, uh, to writing for the stage, and that includes songs, too. And that comes right from that Gilbert and Sullivan tradition. Yeah. I mean, I, I have no idea. We have to ask a historian. I, what fascinates me is I like it. I learned it in college, at Oberlin College, and where this kind of stuff. But I'm fascinated that it survives. I mean, yeah. it's 150 years. And it's always uh, delightful. And, um, so it's a kind of amazing that it still goes on. And, yeah. And, uh, I, did a, I did a summer, the Oberlin, summer yes. Gilbert and Sullivan players on Cape Cod and played about five of the roles yes. uh, in Patience and uh, The Sorcerer and Iolanthe, all yeah. the patter roles. And it was just terrific. Princess Ida. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so the, do you think this response in the theater had to do with our political atmosphere? Right oh, now? sure. I mean, and yeah. it was the public theater. Incidentally, I was performing this on the stage of the, the production that was to open the following week. Mm -hmm. That happened to be the public theater's production of Julius Caesar in which 
Caesar was portrayed as Donald Trump, which you all know what happened there. Uh, so what are you doing next? What, are your ne what should we be watching you for? Well, uh, I'm doing a huge amount of press for Daddy's Home 2, which uh, I did in the spring with, uh, I played Will Ferrell's father. Oh, yes, I've seen, so we've seen fun. previews of that, yes. And he right. is just the greatest, and, yes. you know, Daddy's, Daddy's yeah. Home was about a biological father and a stepfather right. kind right. of feuding over the children and over the wife. In this one, the two fathers arrive for Christmas. Yes. I'm Will's father, and Mark Wahlberg's father is Mel Gibson. <laughs> and the four of us together, it's just hilarious. I think it's going to be huge. But that, that's very, very similar to The Crown. <laughs> and, uh, and then the next thing and I do, gonna, yes, the right. next thing I do is this one-man show that I've been doing for, which was the inspiration the for that book. Uh, it's called Stories by Heart, and I'm doing that on Broadway between December 21st and March 4th, so make your plans now. Well, that's just great. Listen, I want to thank you, and I think that it's now time to turn this to the audience. So there's somebody right there. Why don't you start? Is there anything in that process over the 50-plus years you've been doing this that would help us as human beings empathize more with those we can't directly agree or understand? Well, that's a lovely question. Uh, I, I always hope for that, that, that that's true. I always aspire to that. I do think about, of acting as a gift to an audience, a generous act. What are you giving an audience? You're giving them emotional exercise. Uh, why do we come to see performance. Why do we come to see art? It's to feel things more intensely. You want actors to make you, to, to provide an object of identification so that you can feel things more deeply. Whether that feeling is hilarity or terror or grief. It always seems wonderfully ironic to me that you can sob and sob and sob in terms of endearment and as soon as it's over, you think, what a great movie! You know, it's like, why did I need that? You know, I've just been made to sob, to feel such grief. I will tell you one wonderfully illustrative story. I did a movie called Footloose in the 80s, which, you know, Footloose was my teeny bopper movie. I played, a, you know, the reverend who wouldn't let the kids dance. But I took it very seriously. It was me and Diane Weist, who's a great actress. We figured out a motivation for me to be so conservative, and that is they had lost their son in a car accident, and he did not want this to happen to his daughter. You know, I played it with, I, I did research. I spent time with an actual minister seeking out spiritual help, not telling him I was an actor. <laughs> I took it very seriously, but I, never, I, was, I wasn't kidding myself. This is a movie for teeny boppers. This is my teeny bopper movie, and I, I was always a little bit dismissive of it. But years later, when I was doing Third Rock from the Sun, there was a, an episode where the aliens were stuck in the circus. And there was a young actor, big, strong, handsome guy who played the circus strongman. And after we'd rehearsed for a couple of days, he took me aside and he said, 
Mr. Lisko, I've just been trying to find the right uh, moment to tell you this. I come from a little town in Louisiana, and my daddy was the Baptist minister in that town. And I went to see Footloose when it came to town, and you were my daddy. <laughs> my daddy wouldn't let people listen to rock and roll, wouldn't let you, them dance. Well, I took my daddy to see that movie the next night without telling him what it was about. And I, yeah, by this time, tears were just streaking down his face. He says, I just have to tell you, because of your performance, I was the first one of six children that got to go to his high school prom. You know, <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, Jesus, I did that, you know, and it was just the best evidence I ever heard that you just never know what you're throwing out there. You do want to reach people and you just don't know when you're doing it and when you're not. It can go the other way. You think you're really getting to them and they forget the next morning. But I mean, that, that, that really stuck with me. So that's my answer to your question. You hope, you hope for the best. Uh, hi, John. Is there anybody or any number of people who really stick out in your mind as some of the best actors you ever worked with? Um, it's really hard question to answer. Uh, there are just so many great actors. I just had a one. I often think about the most recent people. Uh, I just this lovely film I did in Rochester. I don't know, a little indie film. I don't know whether anybody will ever see it, but I loved working with Blythe Danner, who's uh, play. We were playing old people who fall in love. Fred Molina in that movie, Love Is Strange. I just mentioned. Just about Claire Foy in The Crown is the most exquisite actress and the best human being I've ever worked with. Just a wonderful person. I'm sure all of you who've seen The Crown are glad to hear that. <laughs> She's just as good as a person as she is as Elizabeth. Um, but you know, it goes on and on and on. I had a very intense and wonderful work experience with Norbert Leo Butts in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels on Broadway. With uh, uh, B.D. Wong in the first production of M. Butterfly back in the 80s. You know, it just, but it, really, it's unfair to the others to mention, to single out anybody. The actors are terrific people. <laughs> you know? Hi, um, so I'm a huge fan. What is something that you can say to your younger self that you would wish that you would known then that you know now about your career and everything? Well, uh, I, uh, I've been working all these years, and I didn't know it back then. So <laughs> I guess I would have just told myself, don't worry so much and be patient and enjoy your life. Um, but it's, you know, that hardly applies when you're really scared about the future. I guess you're younger than you think you are. That's what I would, would tell my young self. And you've got more time than, than you think you have. So, sure. You just played somebody who was probably uh, perhaps the most, the best inspirational political speaker of the 20th century. Um, how do, what do you think about the, how far that art has fallen 
in uh, all politics today, particularly American politics. And why do you think it's important that, that leaders inspire when they speak? Well, you say things have fallen apart, and they have. But think of the eloquence of Barack Obama. I mean, that, that was, you know, I think as the years go by, uh, his eloquence is going to be celebrated the same as Abraham Lincoln's. He's the most beautifully spoken man who was extraordinarily persuasive. And he had a great sense of calming people, uh, uh, reassuring people that the right decisions were being made. I, I think the fact that all of this has happened so fast and it's been so drastic, the contrast is so strong between someone who calms people down and someone who inflames and divides them. It's really, it's just a, a rupture. Uh, it's making us all feel a sense of panic. All I can hope for is that there is a pendulum that swings. You know, there was a period when I was eight years old, seven years old, called the McCarthy era. And we recovered from that. Uh, it, it awakened the very worst in the country, as far as I'm concerned. We're in a period like that now. And I... I just have to think that there is a pendulum swing. And you'd, every day there is something that breaks your heart, but there's also something that makes you hopeful. I'm just waiting to hear a little eloquence from someone. You know? <laughs> Hi. Uh, when you were working on the film The Day After, did you have any idea how impactful it would end up being? Uh, wonderful question. The, surely you all know, the day after was about a very, very realistic uh, nuclear war being started. Uh, and it was set in the Midwest where missile silos suddenly <clears throat> did what they were built to do. Uh, and the answer to your question is no. I did not know it would have nearly that impact. Uh, it was a, you can imagine, it was a very very unpleasant movie to make. If you remember, though, you have seen it. Yeah, you remember those endless scenes in the basement of a physics building on the campus of University of Kansas trying to figure out how to communicate with the outside world by finding old transistors, the, the few things that hadn't been exploded by the impact of the bombs. And it was a terrible, uh, it was a murderously hot. I remember it was like 110 degrees. And we all had horrible nuclear burns and uh, uh, pustulating sores. And we were on this horrible set. It was a uh, sort of decommissioned hospital. And they'd made it look even worse than it already looked. Uh, it was just a horrible experience. I couldn't wait for it to be over. Uh, I guess it's not quite as bad as being in a nuclear war. <laughs> but you, you, we didn't give much thought to how this was going to turn out. It's a very odd thing about movies. When I was doing Footloose, I got, the, I, I got asked to be in yet another film at the same time because they decided that they'd hired the wrong guy. He was involved in an adulterous affair with a leading player. And the, uh, you could just tell this is going to 
turn people off so badly. We can't do that to the leading lady. So they came after me. They, they figured I was a more appropriate adulterer, apparently. <laughs> and they let me out of Footloose to fly out to Nebraska for five days to shoot my entire role. And I, this, was a, this movie was in chaos. People weren't talking to each other. The, no one was listening to the director. It was a great script, but I thought, wow, this is going to be a mess. This movie doesn't have a chance. The movie was called Terms of Endearment. <laughs> you just never know. You really never know. And I think that was the case with the day after. I couldn't wait for it to end. You uh, had a part where you got to sit on an airplane in a dark, stormy night. How many takes did that take? And what was your motivation for that scream? <laughs> I know what you're talking about. This is the Twilight Zone movie, uh, The Monster on the Wing of the Plane. Uh, that was, uh, oh, that was so much fun. That was George Miller. You know, I've constantly said, take it down, take it down, take it down. I could never do enough for George Miller. He wanted more, more. <laughs> he would say, um, I, I want it to be like your face is going to crack. You know, I, and it, boy, did he ever have the right guy. I, he was the first director who wanted me to perform stage uh, stage size to give a stage sized performance it's the first time I felt liberated in front of a camera uh, and he was very efficient you know we just uh, we didn't take many takes I remembered very vividly that extraordinary shot of waiting and thinking is there something behind this you know the little shade on the window I was trying to sleep and I looked at the shade and I looked at the shade and the camera was coming in closer and closer. I looked at the shade. And I lifted up and the monster was right there. <laughs> but I'm sure we only did it once or twice, you know? <laughs> okay, last question. <laughs> Hi, John. I'm a huge fan, especially of Third Rock from the Sun. I want to know one of your funniest stories or your greatest memories from Third Rock from the Sun. Well, I... I absolutely loved the uh, episode where Dick was so perplexed that Dr. Albright, Jane Curtin, was in a women's group. And he wanted to know what they talked about. You know, and he wanted to know what it was like to be a woman. And so he dressed full as a woman and he crashed the women's group. And Jane Curtin's double take when she looked at my face <laughs> like that. That, was, that, was, that has to rank among my favorite moments. I also loved the Irish dance. Have you seen, do you re, raise your hands if you remember the Irish dance from Third Rock. I, I urge you all to go home and Google <laughs> Third Rock from the Sun Irish dance. It was something that was choreographed in about 20 minutes. And it was unbelievable. <laughs> was where Dick Solomon was so crazy about. We all had a thing about Michael Flatley. Just couldn't stand him. <laughs> you know, he was traveling around doing Lord of the Dance. Well, we, they, the writers invited, invented the King of the Jig that was, that was coming to town. And 
And Dick was so excited that he got tickets for the King of the Jig. And then there's this scene where at the end of the show, he comes out of the theater and starts just dancing on the street. And bit by bit, the other characters start to dance, you know, in that perfect, <laughs> just perfect unison. And then all the passers-by on the street, they start dancing too, till there's about 30 of us all dancing. And at the last moment, I tear my shirt off, naked from the waist up. I think that has to rate pretty high. <laughs> You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.